Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. Glad you're able to join us today on this Tuesday afternoon as we get together and discuss Bible discussions and topics and answer questions from the audience. Glad you're able to join us today, and if uh, you want to ask us some questions, we're, we want to hear from you. So go ahead, and if you're calling in from the uh, app, use the uh, Q&A icon button to open up your Q&A box and type in your questions. You're joining us from Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Good to see you. Coming, hey, Drew. Coming in from Stephen's Facebook page. They just what, yep. Stephen? There's put uh, your questions or comments in the comments below, and we'll get to those as soon as we can. Great. Scott is with us as well. Hi, Scott. Hey, Drew. How you doing? Hey, Stephen. Hey, Good to see you both. And Noah Andrews, our webcast engineer, uh, is with us as well. Glad you're all here. And um, I don't think I have any other uh, housekeeping things to take care of. I don't recall if we wanted to say anything else, but let's go ahead and get into our first thing about today. What is it we're talking about today? Preservatives or something like that? Preserve the, yeah, the preservation of the New Testament text. We'll also talk some about the Old Testament as well, but we'll be starting with the New Testament text. And, you know, I, I, and why is this a good thing to talk about? It's because there are some critics of the Bible, right? That they, There are many critics of the Bible. I'm sorry, what? what? There are many critics of the Bible. Absolutely. And one of the areas they go to is that, well, we really don't have the, it's not what it was or something like that. Right. Right. Uh, sometimes people say, well, it's been translated so many times, or we don't have the originals, or the, the manuscripts are late, or they're legendary, or they're, they've been miscopied, or there's all these mistakes in them, those type of things. So that's what we'll start with today. Uh, and so let's, let's start with the argument. Somebody says, well, but do you have the original of Mark? Do you have the original of Galatians? Do you have the original of John? Do you have the original of Acts? And the answer is? No, we don't. We don't have the original. In fact, we don't have the original of any ancient text writings from any source. Just generally, when we're talking about ancient, ancient writings, now you you will have some like things like hieroglyphs or uh, clay tablets and if you're holding that clay, if you're looking at that clay tablet in the museum, that may be, you know, the original of that. But when we're talking about books, uh, lengthy texts, those get copied and copied and copied. So rather than ask, you know, why don't we have the original? Let's compare. How does the Bible as an ancient text compare to other ancient texts of similar age? Well, it's really impressive when you start to stack up the numbers, uh, both as you just ask, well, how many copies do we have is one of the questions that we ask, because it helps if you have multiple copies and you can compare them exactly the idea of what the original would have been. And you also have to look at, well, how old are those copies that we have? How close are they to when the original would have been written? And the closer, the better, obviously. There's less time for there to be uh, more copies and things like that. The closer to the original, the better. And especially when you compare the New Testament documents to other ancient documents, it, 
the New Testament in some ways in a league of its own. Uh, it, it really yeah. is just the number of copies and the close nature of those copies to the, to the originals is, is pretty staggering. Steve, Steve, I pull up any numbers to like compare by of some other ancient writings and kind of both what Steve was saying, he talked about both the number of copies and the gap time between the original and the thing. Did you guys pull up anything on that or have anything? I've got some numbers here. All right, go Um, ahead, Steve. So some other ancient works, for instance, some of the writings of Herodotus, we have eight copies of those. Julius Caesar, we've got 10 copies. Homer's The Iliad. Uh, 643 copies, Aristotle, 49 copies, Plato, seven copies. All right. And of the New Testament documents, now it's, to be fair, it's a number of documents, but we've got a conservative estimate is over 4,500 copies. So when you said in a league of its own compared to five or seven or eight copies or even a few hundred, yeah, look, we're talking about thousands of copies. Right. Now, to be sure, that doesn't mean thousands of copies of the entire New Testament. A lot of early manuscripts might be the four Gospels, or might be the Epistles of Paul, or might be Luke and Acts, or might just be one of the Gospels or something. And some are fragmentary, and some are full. But with these other ancient documents, too, you also have times when there's something fragmentary or, or, or something like that. So that's a huge difference. Now, what yeah. about age? Um, say Caesar's Gallic Wars, uh, if you have the numbers there in front of you, what's the time gap between when it was written and our, say, earliest copy? Well, going through the same examples we gave just a minute ago, um, Herodotus, you've got about 1,400 years between the oldest existing manuscript from the date of writing. Uh, With Julius Caesar, you've got about 1,000 years, is my understanding. Now, put uh, that together with the numbers you gave us before. So with Julius Caesar, how many copies do we have of the Gallic Wars? I'm not sure if it's Gallic Wars specifically, at least in my source here. Uh, it's 10 copies. So and 10. And the oldest one is about 1,000 years later. And Herodotus? How Herodotus, many we had eight copies. And it's about 1,400 years. Yeah. So, right. so does anybody give uh, the critic, the, do the critics say, well, you, we can't really say that that's their original writings. In other words, do they question those documents? There's a general acceptance. There's a recognition, you know, if you're dealing with text, you might recognize, hey, if we've only got this many copies and they're 1,000 or 1,400 years later, you know, there could be some variation in there, obviously. But they're still respected as a historical source of this is what Caesar wrote, or this is what Herodotus wrote. Um, and so it doesn't mean that they're whatever what we would call a typo. Uh, we're now we're talking scribes. So they didn't want that. They hit a wrong key on a typewriter, but you know, you could make a wrong mark. Your, your eye could jump that type of thing. In fact, when you get into the science of it, there's descriptions of the different ways in which someone can make, a mistake copying. Uh, but that's just, just phenomenal when you look at the difference. So we, we've talked about how many copies we have for New Testament text. Now, what about age? Uh, with Gallic Wars, we're talking a thousand years. Herodotus, we're talking 1400 years. What's our oldest manuscript for the New Testament or part of the New Testament? So for the New Testament, 
we have, I believe, a complete copy uh, within about 250 years, or at least putting diff together different sources. But we have fragments of New Testament documents going back to within about 25 years of the original because um, they've got the papyri. Now, again, it may be yeah. just a, a little fragment, but if we can identify, well, that's from the Gospel of John, you know. Um, yeah, the John Rylands, to John Rylands, and if you want to look it up, people, you, can, you can look it up on Wikipedia or elsewhere. The document number is P52. It's the John Rylands fragment. And it's dated from about 120 to 140 AD. And John writing at the late end of the first century. So we've got, and it's not a real big piece. It, it's got writing on front and on the back. So you have several verses of John showing that it was in circulation at that time. Drew's got to come. Let me throw this in real quick. This helped knock out the idea that some people used to have that say John was written later in the second century. Well, then lo and behold, you discover a copy of John that's been in circulation long before the time that you're speculating it was written and they had to revise their date. Go ahead, Drew. Well, I have a question, uh, Scott. So 4,500 copies of different fragments and pieces of, of early cent first century writings compared to the other smaller numbers. And yet we have some that are so close within the first century. Would you say we can attribute the fact that we find so many of those early, older, older ones because Apparently, there was even more than 4,500 copies originally that people were just oh. constantly copying these writings, right? Yes. Which yes. Leads, leads to a question that maybe you're not ready to go into, or it just hit me. Why would people do that? Why would so many copies? I mean, we don't have that many copies of the other ancient uh, documents of antiquity. Why would so many people write copy after copy after copy in such a short period of time in 2,000 years ago? Well, for one thing, nobody believed and was claiming that Herodotus was the son of God that rose from the dead. So that was an academic interest. Some scholars would look at that, but you didn't have people, you know, uh, throughout the, the, the known world at that time, you know, putting their belief that Jesus was the Christ and thus wanting access to documents that told about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and pretty early on, you have even among the Christians, a recognition that these letters and these gospels that are being written, these are scripture. Uh, they're not just documents written by early Christians, but these are inspired of God. I mean, you have the reference in second Peter three uh, verse 16 uh, as Peter comments on Paul's writings and mentions there's some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist as they do the other scriptures. And so it's notable that you've got a reference from Peter to Paul, you know, early on there, that this is a scripture. Uh, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians of chapter three, when you read this, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And so that's one reason that the, early Christians would have copied these things would have been copied. Everybody wanted to be able to have a copy of these things because they consider them to be from God. How does that, let's, let's, with, how, go ahead, Drew. I know you want to get into some of the information, but I'm, I'm just throwing out thoughts that you guys are popping up things in my head. How does that then relate to the criticism that people in the first and second century were generally illiterate? 
and they don't read and write. I mean, this goes against that thought, doesn't it, to some extent? Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, there were certainly people that were illiterate in the first and second century. But to claim that everybody was, I mean, there are, one of the ways that we know how words were used was because scholars go back and they look at wills, letters, writings. You know, there was, there was just lots of writings. Uh, you know, it, 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 when the United States was founded, there were a lot of illiterate people, but it didn't mean that it was an illiterate country that nobody knew how to read. There's people in the United States today that are illiterate, but it doesn't mean you don't have plenty of people that know how to read and write. And uh, I tell you what, you start looking at some ancient writings, uh, or uh, not just ancient, start looking at writings from the 1800s, and it'll kind of put us to shame, the, their vocabulary and their, their use of the English language and stuff. Um, in fact, let me, this is an aside, but let me just throw this out. There's, there's something that we get into called chronological snobbery, where we tend to think that we are smarter than everybody that went before. You heard it, this uh, uh, young man from uh, uh, Florida, uh, who's been on the news a lot lately since the terrible school shooting down there. He made an analogy. He, he, he using a lot of vulgar language, he was talking about uh, their stupid parents that don't even know how to send a, a certain type of message over the phone. And so the teenager just has to take the phone and say, here, let me do it. And you can do it in a second. And he, he used a vulgar term for describing how stupid parents are. And then he said, it's the same with democracy. They don't know how to do it. And so we have to do it. And so it's easy because we know how to, you know, do something. You know, it used to be how to set the, the VCR. Okay, our younger people in the audience don't even know what a VCR is. But this, this is the type of thing. Um, and so sometimes young people or us or a new generation thinks we're so much smarter. The first computer, now it wasn't electronic, it wasn't binary, but there was a computer, a manual computer, found at the bottom of the Aegean Sea that is just astounding. The number of gears in it that you could use, and it would tell you the different days of the year where constellations were, when, when different things were happening, where the different stars were, just absolutely phenomenal. Um, and, and they did that without computers, without electricity. So just people have a tendency to think that we are all that in a bag of chips. And maybe one of the easiest ways to compare it is this. You put 10 people off the street uh, from New York City, and you put them on a desert island with nothing, and you put our great-great-great-great-grandparents on that same desert island, who's going to survive? Who's going to know? Great-great-grandparents. Probably the great-grandparents. Yeah, yeah. Because we know how to use fancy electronics, but most of us don't know how to build it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's also just the point that people talk about this being the information age, and certainly we have access to more information perhaps than any generation before us, but the rate at which we're forgetting how to do things, (laughs) Uh, farming, uh, basic survival skills, like the desert island analogy. Um, If we were to lose our electricity, we're in trouble. Yeah, Um, We're in trouble because we, because we don't know what we haven't been trained. Uh, And so 
we just have to be humble about our knowledge. We have particular knowledge in particular areas, and that's true of every generation. I was reading about... So they're not as illiterate as what people may claim. So go ahead now, Scott. You were going to start going into this. Oh, yeah. Just one manuscript, and we showed this the other day. Jeff, it showed it. I'll throw it up again. Uh, If you would like to see one of the manuscripts online that we have, one of the more famous ones is Codex Sinaiticus. And what's significant about it is all of the New Testament is there, uh, and it's in really excellent condition. So somebody give us a book of the New Testament here. Just pick a book. Let's do 1 John. Sounds good. And so here is 1 John coming up. And that's a handwritten copy of First John, written around 325 to maybe 350 AD. I tell and, you what uh, they got. I tell you what they have over us is penmanship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, and that varies too. Some of the scribes were lousy penmen, had lousy penmanship, and some had really good. And I was going to try to enlarge it because you can, but uh, uh, I'm not doing it right. So, but rather than take up our time, you can go to the, just type in Codex Sinaiticus. You can go to the page, and here's what it says in the English. Here's the Greek in a printed out, and then here is the Greek in the actual text. So, uh, and and we've got not just that; we've got copies of a lot of the epistles from before 200, or a number of them anyway, in uh, whole uh, documents. You know, like all of say first Thessalonians or all of Romans or all and uh, going way back. So that argument is put to rest. So now let's go to something else. Somebody says, well, but there are thousands and thousands of mistakes and variants. You've got all these doc and does it say this or does it say that? Did it say this or did it say, how can we ever know what the original said? Because out of all these thousands of mistakes, the copyist made, who can know? Well, um, one source that I've looked at uh, talks about that if you look at all of the different manuscripts we have, which one of the things about having a lot of manuscripts means that there's more margin for there to be variants among those manuscripts. Yeah. And this particular number, again, these numbers range sometimes, is there are over 150,000 variants in the different manuscripts. Um, if you count all the manuscripts in the New Testament, we have 150,000 variants. How can you trust a document like that? Well, here, yeah. here, here's what you can do with those numbers. You can reduce that number by 95% by only looking at earlier manuscripts that we would look, say that these are, would be more authoritative because they're closer to the original source. And so that gets you down to... Um, about 7,500 variants of that number. 7,500 variants can still be a lot. That's a big number. But what are those variants? You can reduce that number down by 95% by just eliminating what they call orthographical errors. Those are errors in spelling uh, changes in where the accent is or a change in spelling over time. Um, and so you can reduce that down to about 375 variants. Of those 375 variants, you can cut that about in half 
by just looking at things that are very simple to figure out. There's times where there's variants that are tough to figure out. Well, was this the original or was that the original? But there's times where it's obvious. Okay, this means the same thing. They just use different words to say the same thing. Um, and so you get down to about 150 variants that are maybe more significant. But you can still reduce that down by looking, throwing out variants that are like, well, here he used child and there they use the word youth. Well, it's the same, it's the same basic thing. Um, and so you can get down to about 50 variants, uh, which is 0.03% of the original 150,000 supposed variants of the text that may have a bearing on the text itself, on the meaning of the text. But of the passages in question, none of them have a significant bearing on the doctrinal teaching of the New Testament. There are no... When people talk about all of these variants, it's not like one said Thomas died on the cross and another one said Jesus never rose from the dead and another one said, you know, you should worship Mary. It's not like that. I'll give an example in Romans chapter 1 where it mentions Jesus being the son of David. Some manuscripts spell David David, and some manuscripts spell it David. Well, it's David either way. Uh, so is an article missing or is it not there? And a lot of things have to do with that. Drew? Yeah, so there's not, if you look at the, the total number of variants and, and narrow them down, you're talking about a few per the 4,500, right? Among the 4,500 4, copies. But Joy raised the question, does, does any of what you're talking about fall into what uh, she, uh, she says? What about the last section of Mark? Bibles sure. always yeah. note that e earlier manuscripts do not include it. So how, uh-oh, what, 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 hold on. Uh, how, so how do we know it's reliable? There are two large sections in the New Testament uh, that are really textually questionable. One is the end of Mark 16, um, and the other is the story of the woman taken in adultery. It's, I think, the last verse of John 7, and then the first, say, dozen verses of John 8. Both of those are large section of text, and if you look at the oldest manuscripts, they are not there. Like, let's pull up Codex Sinaiticus again, uh, and if uh, do I have share screen on? Not yet. Not yet. All right, let's put it on. And there we go to the codex. And so we're going to go to Mark 16. Now, before this was ever online, because it was before there was an internet, uh, Jeff and I went one day up to Harvard University to Andover Theological School to their rare books stop, thing. Stop right there. There's Mark. There we go. I'm talking instead of looking. Um and uh, we looked at a copy in front of us of Mark 16. It was a photographic copy of this text. And let me see if I can pull it out here at once. Should be the next page. By the way, that's a good question, Joy. I'm glad you brought that up. Well, I'm not being able to enlarge it here. Sorry. And I'm trying to get it. to this I next page. I couldn't read what you're looking at anyway. But anyway, um, 
went there and looked at it, and it, it just ends after verse 8. And it's not that it's fragmentary. It's not that cave worms ate it or tore away. It, it ended, and you didn't have the other ending. So when you look at manuscripts, you have four different variations, basically, of Mark chapter 16. Um, if you'll open your Bible and look at Mark chapter 16, you'll probably have a Bible that has a note that lets you know, like do either of you, do you have a note there in your Bible that says something about verse 9 through 20? And what does uh, it Yes, the ESV has a comment that they put kind of in the middle of the text that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16 verses 9 through 20. And then there are some manuscripts that have and, and so some of those, they just don't have anything after verse 8. Then there are some manuscripts that have a shorter ending, and you can look up online and find what that is. Then I've got it right here if we want to read it. Okay, yeah, go ahead, Stephen. Some manuscripts include after verse 8 the following. But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. So it's a pretty short ending yeah, after verse eight. Short. And then there's Codex W, which is about a fifth century manuscript, if I remember. And it's called Codex W because it's in Washington, D.C. It's in the basement of the Smithsonian. And uh, Jeff actually arranged one time and... Uh, Dad, Paul Earnhardt, Jeff, and I got to go down into the basement of the Smithsonian, and a curator showed us Codex W, and he also let us see an old Septuagint. Uh, Codex W was behind glass, though. And it has a reading no other Bible has. So it's from about the, what, 5th century or so, and 5th uh, or 6th, and it said um, kind of similar to one of these, but then the disciple said, basically, you'll have to pardon us for we live in an age of darkness. No other manuscript had that. So Joy's question is a good question. Which of these textual ones is correct? Well, here we really do have a textual issue because all later manuscripts have this ending. Some have that ending. Codex W has this ending, and the early ones don't have any ending there. So I, there's, this is textually dubious, so I don't make my arguments from Mark 16. Uh, for example, a lot of people go to Mark 16 and 16 about baptism because it's in a textually questionable section. I instead go to the texts that are not, you know, uh, there's no confusion about the reliability of what the original text was. You got Acts 2.38, you got Romans 6, you got 1 Peter 3.1, Stephen. And that that right there illustrates the fact that even when there are significant questions about, well, what did the original say here? And sometimes it's hard to know. Well, in this case, should that verse be in there? Should this section of verses be in there? There are times where those are tough questions to answer definitively, but it still doesn't change what the New Testament teaches about baptism, for instance. We right, have other right. verses on the topic. And what's in Mark 16, if it was original, it doesn't change anything. In and fact, if it that wasn't up. original, it still doesn't change anything. E either way, it doesn't change the New Testament teaching on a given subject. That brings up a very important point, and it is this. 
are we looking to see what the text said, or are we looking to prove that our favorite translation is the original? You see the difference of what I'm saying? Uh, for example, uh, the King James Bible, which they, I think they did a phenomenal job overall in translating the King James Bible. Um, it was based on Stephanus's text, which was based going back to previous editions uh, built upon Erasmus's text. Erasmus did his Greek text in the early 1500s, and about 100 years later, the King James came out, following kind of a chain of uh, uh, connections there. And Erasmus only had about a dozen manuscripts to look at. Manuscripts were the handwritten ones. And out of the dozen, he only used about half a dozen, really. And most all of them were from around the 10th or 11th or maybe even 12th century. So he's having to use manuscripts from over a thousand years or about a thousand years after Christ. And he's only got a few. Now we have a lot more manuscripts. So it makes sense to check and see what they say. And our allegiance shouldn't be, well, I'm going to start with the King James and that's the original. No, that's not the original. That's a good translation into English that was done in 1611 on some later manuscripts. Uh, to show that looking at an earlier manuscript is beneficial, uh, one of my favorite examples is there's an acrostic psalm. Look in your Bible at Psalm. Now, here we're switching a little bit to the Hebrew, but let's do that for just a minute. Let's go to Psalm 140. I believe it's 145. Yeah, Psalm 145. Uh, some Bibles, uh, everybody knows when you get to Psalm 119, in the Hebrew, what stands out about Psalm 119? It's acrostic, Dave. Yeah, it's acrostic. Poetic. To Psalm 145 is, yeah, Psalm 145 is also acrostic. And some Bibles even have beside it the little Hebrew letter for each verse. So verse 1 is is the, the Hebrew equivalent of, of an A, and then it, it, it works its way down through. Here's the thing. There are 22 letters in the Greek in the in the Hebrew alphabet, and if you go over to Psalm 119, um, well, this is stick here with Psalm 145. How many verses are in Psalm 145? 21. 21. You know why? The N is missing in the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text was a Jewish text being copied around 1000 A.D. That our Old Testaments used to be primarily based on in stars or what. So it was missing the end. So it'd be the equivalent. Imagine you found a alphabet book uh, for maybe your child's alphabet book. And it said A is for apple, B is for bear, C is for cat. And you go through and you get to lion is for, L is for lion, M is for monkey, O is for ostrich. What happened? Did you lose something in the middle there? Yeah, yeah. Where, where did the end go? Now, the rabbis used to try to explain this in a way to make it, you know, not be a textual question. And they said that there's some Hebrew word that has to do with sin that begins with an N. And so that's why the end got left out. Yeah, it's, it's, the N is over there in Psalm 119. So, yeah, that, that's not it. But you know what? 
the Septuagint has an extra verse right where the end should go. And here's what's beautiful. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, Qumran and the other place around the Dead Sea area there, back in the 1940s up to the early 60s, um, they found sectarian documents of the Qumran, apparently Essene community, uh, like the Damascus Scroll, the War Scroll, the, et cetera, et cetera. But they also had copies of the Old Testament. And Hebrew Bibles counted books that we count separately as one. Like they didn't count first and second Samuel as two books and be one, etc. But counting the books they count the way they counted them, every single book of the Old Testament was represented there except one. The one the copy found of Esther. And guess what? In Psalms, Psalm one forty five was found from before the time of Christ. Over a thousand years before the Masoretic text copies. And guess what it had? 22 verses. Well, it, yeah, it had the 22 Hebrew letters. It had verse, the verse for the end. And it matched the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was translated, so it didn't mean that it began with the end. But the Septuagint was done at a time when people still knew that inverse. So, and so we've had that there all along in the Septuagint. Then we find it in the Hebrew, which is why, Stephen, look at your ESV. One of your verses is twice as long as the other ones. Look at verse 13. Mm-hmm. You have a footnote there on it. Yeah, it's got it in brackets. And then down at the bottom, it says, these two lines are supplied, supplied by one Hebrew manuscript, Septuagint and the Syriac, and then compared to the Dead Sea Scroll. There you go. So when the King James was done, and, and when the Master of Text was done, that end was missing, but it, it's, been, it's been found. So, so now it's uh, that just shows that we shouldn't start with, you know, assume Paul wrote the King James Bible in King James English, and that's what we're starting point. That's a great translation of the Bible. But the starting point is we want to go back earlier. But the King James Version is the original that Paul used, right? I mean, if it was good enough for Paul, then it's good enough for me. So. It's the authorized version. Yeah, and who the did the and who did the authorizing on that, Scott? Uh, that would be King James, the same King James that harried the pilgrims out of England. Uh, by the way, a lot of people might be surprised to know the pilgrims did not use the King James Bible. Uh, they used the Great Bible, I believe, was one they used because they were not fans of King James. Uh, he was the guy that chased them out. He said, I will harry them out of the land or something to that effect. So you had mentioned the, you, you, you mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that was a great discovery on a number of, for a number of reasons. Yeah. How, did that, how does the Dead Sea Scrolls then um, uh, confirm some of our other, well, Isaiah, I know for one, is in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now you yes. Have- Would one of you pull up online and share a screen of the great Isaiah Scrolls? This is just cool. One of the best conditioned scrolls found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this, the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of them are pretty pagmentary because cave worms got at them and such. But the, the great Isaiah scroll has the book of Isaiah. Uh, and it's in fantastic condition. And you got it's that, Stephen? I've got it here. Good. Sorry, if you can Scott. share that screen with So this is this copy that you're about to see was handwritten about 150 years before Jesus was born. If you can pull that up there for us. Here. All right, can y'all see that? Yeah. 
There it is. So you're, saying, so you're saying, Scott, that this document that we're looking at was written 150 years before Jesus, Jesus. was born. Yes, yes. Not that Isaiah wrote it 150 years before Jesus, but the scribe that made a copy of Isaiah 150, uh, roughly 150 years before Jesus, maybe 200 years before, this is what he wrote, and it has survived for over 2,000 years. And now, hold on. If hold you on. will type in chapter 53, we can go right to chapter 53. Yeah, I'm right up here. While he's doing that, I have a question. So before they they discovered the this in 19, what, 48? Before they 1940s. Discovered, before they discovered this, what was the oldest copy we had of Isaiah? Let me show you the, uh, Stephen, if you'll let me share a screen. Um, this is the Use cover that, of Codex Libret, which is a really cool document. Um, and this is from 1009 AD. Uh, yeah, here we go. So this is the cover of Codex Leningrad. Um, and this, if you've ever heard the term Masoretic text, this is the Masoretic text. So can everybody see that? Yeah. Okay, that's cool. I, Samuel, son of Jacob, wrote the consonants and inserted the vowel points and the Masoretic notes. Uh, and so that, what you're looking at right there, was uh, that cover page uh, was done, uh, I believe it was 1009 A.D. So that's a thousand years after Jesus. After Christ, yes. And the Masoretic, when you hear about the guys that counted every letter and, and all that, that was these guys. Not all scribes did that, but that was these guys, like between, say, 700, 800, 900, up to 1,080, somewhere around in that area is Masoretic scribes. And they're Jews, and they're copying the Torah. And that copy that you see there was done about 1,009 A.D. And going back to, say, the time of the King James, and since then, the Hebrew Masoretic text was based on that. For example, let me come back and stop sharing. And can people see me now? Yep. Yes. All right. So can you see the book I'm holding up? Yep. Yes. All right. This is a Hebrew Bible. So what's this? This is a Jewish Bible. What is going to be different about this Bible in our Bible? Uh, we, I can't read Hebrew. <laughs> well, no, it's in, it's in English. Okay. Pardon me, I shouldn't have said, uh, I should have said it's a Jewish Bible. So but the big between this and this is going to be what? Well, we got the New Testament. Yeah, the, the, the Jewish Bible, if you go to a synagogue and sit down and pick up the Bible in the synagogue done by the Jewish Publication Society, it's not going to have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It doesn't have a New Testament because they don't accept him as the Messiah. Now, if you go through and look inside, it's going to have the same books of the Bible for the Old Testament that we do, which is interesting as a side on the, the question of the extra books that uh, are in some Catholic Bibles. This will have the same as that. But it is according to, as it says here, the Masoretic text. Okay, the Masoretes did a great job copying but with the Dead Sea Scrolls, that copy of Isaiah that Stephen just showed us, that's like 150 years before Jesus, which puts it nearly coming up on 1,200 years before the Master Text, or uh, 1,160. 
something like that. That's huge. You want to see what the differences are? Yeah. Yeah. You got me sitting on the edge of my seat here. This is the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible. I was waiting and waiting for years for them to come out with this. And because what it is, they published some of the Dead Sea Scroll text, particular to the community. And if I can give a rough illustration, it's not a perfect illustration, but just to kind of help clarify. Imagine archaeologists went in years later and found Drew's library and Stephen's library. What type of things would they find in your library? A lot of old hymnals. All right. Yeah, there you go. Uh, imagine you went in and you looked at, you found an old Methodist church library from the middle 1800s. Would you be surprised if there were some Bibles in there? No, not at all. Would you be surprised if there was a Methodist discipline in there? No. The rule books of the Methodists. Yeah. Or an old uh, Mormon church from 1870. It would have the Book of Mormon doctor and it would have a Bible, right? Well, this, the Essenes, they had their writings and they had the biblical writings. So scholars were first interested in their writings. It was a long time before they published the biblical writings. And a lot of them were the biblical ones. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Some sections vary more, like the book of Jeremiah varies a lot more. But I'm going to predict, and maybe we'll do this as an experiment right here. Do we have time? How many more minutes do we have, Drew? Four more minutes. Okay, so we don't have time to do this, so I'll just, I'll just, you can do this at home as an exercise. Look up on, say, go to Blue Letter Bible or something, look at the King James, the New American Standard, the American Standard, and the ASV, and compare, try to count how many variations you have in a single verse. Between those translations? Yeah, yeah, uh, because the King James might have a thou, where the ESV would have a you. One might have uh, iniquities. One might have sins. You know, that, that type of differences. You're going to have so many more differences between those than you would between the Masoretic text of 1009 and the Hebrew text of Isaiah 53 of right then. So I'm going to grab my camera and put it here on the text and see if this will work. Um, is it going to work? If it doesn't, this is going to be a terrible idea. It can't focus on it. No, it doesn't want to focus. Oh, and it's backwards. I can also pull up the, it, there is a translation of the uh, Great Isaiah scroll on here. If we want to, we can do a screen share of that if you want to. Okay. Um, well, there it is. There it is. I've got my camera upside down. Is that it? Uh, no, 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 you, you were correct the first time. <laughs> Is there it backwards go. for y'all? Nope. Nope. Really? Okay. Yeah. Look at line one there where it says, do I have line one? Who has believed our message. All right. I'm, for me, it's backwards, so I'm having a terrible time. Okay, here we go. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord, etc.? Do you see one word in there that is in italics? Whom? You know what that means? That means it's a variant. So you come down here, and it turns out some have on whom instead of whom. 
Gotcha. Now I'm just going to come out here and I want you to see, I'm sorry it's not showing up, but I should have tested this. Do you see how many words are not in italics? There's one right in the middle of your screen. What's the word? And. And. Oh, some manuscripts have an and there and some don't. Do you see how many words are not in italics? Mm-hmm. Majority. Yeah. So after a, a, over 1,100 years, it's, it's just like very, very minimal difference. Be a lot more difference between the other. Sorry that that wasn't any clearer. So what you're saying is the 1,100 year span between two different documents are showing an identical wording. Well, not identical because well, one said for the one end. manuscript said whom, one said yeah. on whom. Yeah. Uh, and here's one interesting one. Listen to this. One of you read verse nine in your translation. I've got it here. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And what would you tie the rich man in with? I would think uh, Joseph of Arimathea, him being okay. buried in his tomb. And it says he's with a rich man in his death. Mm-hmm. You go back to before the time of Christ, guess what it said? Uh, verse 9. And with rich people, his tomb. And one manuscript has a rich man, his tomb. So he... Uh, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in one manuscript or one reading various on it, his tomb, which seems even more specific. So when you just look at that and then somebody says, well, how could you possibly have any idea? They did a pretty good job of copying. So the bottom line is what you're saying is that we have the scriptures preserved over the centuries. And, and let's let's finish with this illustration. Suppose everybody in our audience, however many you're listening today, suppose all of them took a transcript of today's broadcast and wrote it out by hand. Do you suppose anybody would have made a mistake or spelled a word wrong or doubled a word or skipped a word? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And if after how, how many down with downloads and stuff, usually how many people do we have viewing a particular program after the downloads and stuff through uh, in a given uh, month, 600. Okay. So if 600 people all transcribed by hand, every word of today's webcast, and then you went and looked for every misspelling Every, you know, he missed that the or that and that would be a probably a pretty high number. But does that mean that you couldn't read them and still understand that what we had said? Yeah, that's right. You could definitely figure out what, yes. what we said. And if you went through and most all of them had Stephen saying the word and and three guys missed it even though it doesn't really matter that much, we could figure out, oh, <laughs> he said it. So that's, that's maybe a good way of looking at this. Okay. Look, we're, we're past time, guys. And, we go. uh, but I, I, you had mentioned about downloads, and I do want to invite those that download podcasts. 
a lot of you are pod, uh, downloading our podcasts, which usually get up there a day or two after the live event. The disadvantage you have in the podcast is you don't see our screens when we do our screen shares. But the advantage you can have is go to BibleQuest.tv, look for that episode, and you can then see the full video version of it. And I want to invite everyone, those of you on our podcast, to go to the website and ask us questions. Everyone I'm inviting, please ask us questions or make comments in the form that's on that page, BibleQuest.tv so that we can discuss and answer your questions or concerns or challenges. Maybe you want to challenge on some of the things that we talk about. Um, and sorry for not getting the audience in. more involved today. And we did have some comments we didn't get to. I'll just throw out this here as we close with then going back to just kind of the chronological snobbery. Herman says, they are using calculators in school. That was cheating when I was growing up. <laughs> Uh, Rick had put in a comment very early on when he was talking about the copy. We were talking about the copies. I think he was plagiarizing a bestseller. Ah. <laughs> the copies. There you go. Yeah, there was no copyright. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I, I thank you guys. Did you want to add anything else to it, Stephen, as we uh, end the show? No. Thanks to everybody for tuning in today. Appreciate it, everybody. Look forward to seeing you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.